This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about the historic elections in Georgia, which, of course, voted for Biden and two Democratic senators. It was the culmination of a decade of work by Stacey Abrams' new Georgia project. And we wonder, could we do this again in another state, maybe Texas? For answers, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White. He's the founder of Democracy in Color. They've proposed the best data-backed plan on how Democrats and progressives can take back the country. He's host of the Democracy in Color podcast, and he writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Nation. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, the big question, how did Stacey Abrams do it in Georgia? So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been uh, quite the journey. I mean, let's, what do they call it? The 10-year overnight success, basically, right? And, uh, <laughs> yes. And I hadn't realized it had been that long. So I've been connected. I got connected to Stacy by uh, Ben Jealous when he was at president of the NAACP. He knew Stacy from like 20 years ago when they were first coming up. And Ben connected me to her uh, almost 10 years to the day from the, the, the runoff election. It was January tw- 2011. And the very first email she sent to me, she says, we have a lot of opportunities in Georgia, but it will require careful planning and friends from outside the South. And so when I first met with her in 2011, she had this very detailed, multi-year, data-rich plan for how they were going to turn Georgia's demographic population changes into votes at the polls and political power. And it was multi-year, and it was tiered and methodical. And bottom line, that's what they've done. They've steadily, methodically turned the large number of non-voting people of color into voters, and built the infrastructure and the organizational capacity to do that. And the whole world saw the results um, in January. And Texas has the largest Latino population in the United States outside of California. California Latinos are already very much mobilized politically to vote Democratic. Texas Latinos are not mostly mobilized to vote uh, Democratic. Let's first of all talk about the kind of lay of the land or the demography in Texas. Yeah, and it's interesting you make the the California connection, right? I mean, I've been in in doing this work out here in California for you know since the '80s, really, and it w- it wasn't always the case, right? And it really was there was a multifaceted Trump-like attack, particularly on Latinos and on immigrants in the early '90s, right? The author Jewel Taylor Gibbs has this book called "Preserving Privilege," and so the anti-immigration, anti-bilingual education, ballot measures that they had, in a lot of ways awoke the Latino population in California. And Latinos then began to both naturalize, become citizens, and register and vote in larger and larger numbers to the extent where now all of the statewide elected offices are held by Democrats. And that is largely because of the Latino dominance or or influence within the overall state population. So Texas has a similar potential and trajectory, and I actually think that they're moving in that direction. And, you know, people, there's so much um, misinterpretation from this last election in terms of what actually happened. I mean, it's that Trump found every possible last Trump believer in the country and turned them out. And there's a real uh, uh, potential to misinterpret 
the size and strength and reach of his of his vote, which is not small by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not the majority. And we saw that in the Georgia runoffs. Without Trump on the ballot, without the you know visceral cult-like devotion, the they did not have the historic turnout. And so I say to say that in Texas, Biden got more votes in Texas than Trump got in Texas in 2016. And so there's real progress that's happening there um, and that we did, but, you know, we didn't didn't flip it this year because of how large the Trump vote was. But there is still 3 million eligible non-voting Latinos in this last election uh, in Texas and then another million uh, other people of color who were eligible and didn't vote. So the potential is enormous in a state that was only lost by 600,000 votes when there's four and a half million people of color who didn't vote. You have a chart in your article in The Nation magazine showing how the Democrats lost Texas in 2020 by 630,000 votes, but there are four and a half million people of color eligible to vote who didn't do it. It's eye-opening. It's astounding. It's inspiring. Now, so the question, you know, I've often talked about is why Texas is so different from California. You talked about the political history of California that mobilized uh, Latinos, Mexican-Americans especially, to vote. And of course, there's a second factor, which is that they were organized, especially in Los Angeles County, the largest county in the nation, 10 million people, probably majority Latino now. They were mobilized by a new labor movement, the Los Angeles County Federation became a Latino-led organization during the period that we're talking about, and they put a lot of energy into registering and turning out uh, Latino uh, uh, voters. And Texas, of course, is a notoriously anti-union state. There's nothing like the L.A. County Fed in Texas. So the, the question is whether Texas has other groups that are capable of playing a similar role. And what's your answer to that? Yeah, no, that's a very good insight in terms of the California trajectory is that that was a very strategic role that uh, the L.A. County Fed played, um, you know, particularly under uh, Miguel Contreras. He was the, the the head of that, partnering with community-based organizations. And so yeah. Anthony Thigpen runs the organization Agenda, which, is, which has built – uh, a voter mobilization operation. I've walked precincts with Anthony's operation. You know, they hand you a, a folder and you go door to door, you go back, they plug it right into the computer. And so the similar type of operation that Stacey and them ran in, uh, in, in Georgia. So that infrastructure was critical in terms of California having more of that union um, capacity. That's a, a kind of a wake-up call to the progressive movement about Texas. So there, is, there are a number of organizations in Texas that are doing very good work. I and mean, the one that I highlighted, it's kind of been the, the, the centerpiece of a lot of the work there is Texas Organizing Project. And so run by Michelle Tremillo and Brianna Brown's the deputy director. They have not gotten the acclaim or credit that they should have, but they've been very instrumental and very effective. Um, and I talk in my book about how uh, like somebody once told me, he said, never trust a number that ends in zero in terms of voter turnout in you know, projections. Mm-hmm. And so top will send out these updates saying, and then people will be like, oh, well, we contacted, you know, a million people. You can email a million people, right? But whether that translates to votes is a whole other question. And so top will say, we delivered 121,333 people to the polls. 
And they did do that, and they did that in in a, uh, in Houston's mayoral election a few years ago. That was the margin of difference. They did that in San Antonio's mayoral elections. That was the margin of difference. They've done it in a number of district attorney races. And so uh, TOP is the organization that has the statewide infrastructure, statewide apparatus, and certainly the methodology and the results, but they need more resources. And so that's what, I mean, I was, I used to have to, I mentioned that people should add a zero in terms of the amounts of money that's out there, right? So the labor fed in California labor movement has a lot of resources. And so they could fund community-based voter or voter organizing work, but that's got to fall to Democratic Party, progressive organizations, foundations, to be able to fund that in a place like Texas at a scale uh, as a place like Texas, right? Because I, I, in my article, noting, right, when I first met Stacey Abrams in Georgia, I tried to help her, you know, uh, raise money and helped her raise $10,000 into her pack in 2012, which raised $54,000 that year. Last year, her organization, Fair Fight, raised $90 million. Whoa. And saved the country and saved the world right? <laughs> yeah. when they had the right amount of resources. And so that's what I say in our piece. I think TOPS budget is about $5 million. It should be 50, yeah. right? That, that the Democrats spend over a billion dollars, just the Democrats, progressive, super PACs. And so the numbers are there, the infrastructure and potential, but not the resources at the scale that's necessary. Let's talk a little more about leadership here uh, you highlight the importance of something you call level five leaders. We saw that George is the best example. And what are level five leaders, and do we have them in Texas? Yeah, so that's a that's a insight from the the author uh, Jim Collins, who wrote this uh, wrote this book, Good to Great, and he analyzed over a thousand different corporations and looked at all their data and their the analytics and the securities filings, and tried to discern what was the essence of what made the great companies distinctive from just the good companies. And one of the factors, I think the first factor that he identified was he called what he calls level five leaders. And he describes it as people who are this combination of ambition and humility. And so ambition for the cause and really this you know incredible drive and discipline and force of will around the work and the cause but they're actually very personally humble and they don't draw you do that uh, uh, type of ambitious piece for themselves. I'm working on a, on a new book um, with the new press we call How We Win the Civil War. And we're lifting up these case studies of Georgia, Arizona, some place, um, San Diego, Texas, and Virginia. And in all those places, they have these level five leaders. And so that's what we're trying to lift that piece up is that you've got, and then for it, it's it's a little counterintuitive to people that Stacey Abrams would be such a person because she's now so famous and so well-known. But if you think about it, it's all been about the cause. People wanted her to run for everything. They do everything, run for the Senate. I mean, Chuck, you know, Chuck Schubert called me, asked me, can you get Stacey Abrams to run for the Senate? And everyone on their brother was running for a president. And so, but she was like, no, I'm, as she says, she says, I'm going to do the work and built an organization. And when I first, when she first told me about Fair Fight, I'm like, well, that sounds good, but is that the thing? Voting rights, right? But it sure turned out to be. And she built up an apparatus that was not about her. It was about doing the work. And so that's the, that's the type of person. And that's the type of leaders that all of these states actually have, like Virginia, you know, some Tram, Tram Wynn with the New Virginia Majority does that work, and Arizona, John Laredo. 
And in Texas, Michelle Tremio and, and Brianna Brown are just got their heads down doing the work, building the organization. They're not out, you know, promoting themselves and, you know, crewing their own, you know, accolades, but they're, you know, as I was saying, maniacally focused on building a voter turnout operation. So that's the type of leadership that each of these places that has had the types of transformation that we need has had. And so fortunately, Texas has it. But again, it's the resource question, right? When Stacey had $54,000, she could do, she did actually stop the state from getting, the legislature from getting a two-thirds Republican majority. When she had 90 million, she saved the whole planet. Yeah. And so that's what has to happen in a place like Texas. Of course, on the other side, the Republican response to voting by people of color has been vote suppression, long-term project of the Republican Party, particularly intense in Texas. They've tried to purge the voter rolls. They've forced polling places to close. They've tried to keep voter registration difficult. And most amazingly, they tried to limit voting by mail during the pandemic so first of all, how much of the low turnout among people of color in Texas do you think is the result of Republican vote suppression and, and what can be done about it? Yeah, no, that's a, a longstanding and fundamental cornerstone um, of the conservative Confederate uh, approach. Right? Even going back to, really even before, but certainly going back to the post-Civil War attacks on enfranchisement and so the destruction of Reconstruction. After they got rid of Reconstruction in the in the after the Civil War, they rewrote the constitutions in the multiple Southern states to disenfranchise. And they were pretty explicit about how do we disenfranchise the black vote and make sure that it doesn't become like a place in Mississippi. The black vote was, I believe, the majority or close to the majority of all the population. So this this and then you 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 link that with the the uh, forebearers of the Proud Boys, which is this you know, really white nationalist terrorist operation. I mean, that's how the Ku Klux Klan came into being as an extra-legal terrorist organization to stop black people from voting. So this has long roots and long history in terms of what these folks have been doing. And then I hope that even in like the history books, people will look at it and say, how, how like inhumane is it to try to force people to the polls in the middle of a pandemic? And that just even at that level, just the level of the humanity of it. So, and then everything they tried to do to get around that, right? So, okay, we'll have drop boxes or you'll have drive through drop boxes so that you can actually be, you know, safe and not exposed to this, uh, you know, once in a hundred year global pandemic. They're like, no, you can't do that either. So, every single possible thing they could do to suppress the vote, they did do. And I think it has a role and it has an impact in terms of not maximizing our turnout. Um, But overall, in this election, turnout was up and it did increase. And so that's what people don't fully appreciate is that it's like uh, the congressional people. I wrote a piece for The Nation about this uh, a few months ago. In the after the congressional races, a lot of people had close races or even some of the Dems who lost were mad. And they're talking about, you know, well, you, we shouldn't be talking about defund the police and, and, and socialism. And that's why we lost. But that's not why they lost. If you look at the actual numbers and even like uh, Abigail Spamberger, I think from Virginia, one of the main people saying that she got more votes than she got in 2018. So she didn't lose any votes. What happened in this whole last election is that Trump found every single make America white again person in the entire country and brought them to the polls. 
And so it raised the turnout of everybody across the board. And so Democratic turnout was up in Texas, but the Republican conservative turnout was up more. And so I think that's a really important thing for us to understand. And, but there's things that we can do, right? There's a, um, one of the places I'm going to highlight in my book, another place I have this, I've made this progress is in San Diego. And so Alliance San Diego, the level five leader there is woman, Andrea Guerrero, who's built up a, you know, Latina-led civic engagement effort there. She was pointing out that San Diego is on the border of Mexico, that in Mexico, it's the law that you have to run ads on the radio publicizing the election. And so you let people know, you, you raise public awareness about it. So in San Diego, they hear all these ads from Mexico about upcoming elections, hmm. but they never get any ads about elections in San Diego. <laughs> and so those are some of the structural types of things that we could do to make uh, raise awareness about election if we actually wanted people uh, to vote. And some of those types of things are, are what the, the county executive in Harris County or Houston is, is done, Lena Hidalgo. She made a lot of different um, innovations like that, um, 24-hour voting to be able to make it easier to vote. And so we've shown that if you want people to vote, you can actually uh, make it easier. Um, we've seen a lot of examples of that. Steve Phillips, his article, This is Why Texas is the Next Georgia is at thenation.com. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.